right. Thanks for communion, everybody. And we are in week four. We've been going over the last three weeks of the sermon series Against All Odds. So are you ready to dig into God's Word this morning? Hopefully. We are going to be, of course, in Isaiah 53 once again. And then we'll bounce around a little bit back in Genesis and play around there a little bit. So, again, we are in our series called Against All Odds. We build up for six weeks to Easter with Palm Sunday being next Sunday and Easter being only two Sundays away. That for the Christian, that is probably one of the greatest holidays besides Christmas that we have. And we want to rejoice and celebrate. Once again, we know that for many that are hearing my voice or hear that we have heard the Easter story so many times that sometimes it can just become another story in our in our wheelhouse another another year of kind of going through routine and tradition and celebrating so I hope that in a series that we are encouraged to remember the excitement of what Easter is about that Christ did go through a horrible crucifixion a horrible torture a horrible cursed death but because of that, he paid the debt of our sin and three days later rose from the grave to prove that he was the Son of God and to show us that in him, as we die with him, we can be raised with him. And I pray that in a series we are reminded of God's immense love for us, that the attitude besides humility would be the excitement to serve Christ, to, to realize that day in and day out, no matter where we are or what we do, that God is with us and he has our future in our hands, and he is building a place for us in heaven as we speak, and when the time is right, he will come and bring us back to him and share there. So we remember once again that 700 years ago, the prophet Isaiah predicted what would happen to the Messiah, the forthcoming son of God that would save the people from their sins, that would be that final sacrificial lamb. And we read in Isaiah 53 verse seven, says that Jesus was led like a lamb to the slaughter. Now we're going to dig back in Isaiah 53 a little bit, but you know, if you're writing a story about the hero, that's typically not how you want it to end, right? He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And again, the picture images that in good Jewish history, every year they would gather and they would sacrifice animals because it was believed that the the shed blood of the animal would cover temporarily the sins of the people because the price of sin is what? Death. Separation from God. Spiritual death. Now we all know that we will face a physical death someday, right? Some of us sooner than others. Some of us a little bit longer. We all face a physical death because of sin. But the big issue that we want to deal with is our spiritual death. And the price, the penalty of sin is that spiritual death, that separation between God and us, and that relationship is destroyed. And so because there needed to be a death to pay for that sin, a sacrificial lamb was offered up in place of the people and their sin to temporarily cover that. But the problem was, after they offered up that sacrificial lamb, what did the people keep doing? They kept sinning. After salvation and we receive forgiveness, what do we keep doing? Sinning. Not always on purpose, sometimes, but that sin issue is still there and we struggle with it our entire life. As Satan tries to tempt us, and distract us from drawing close to God, from going in God's way. And so there had to be continual 
continual sacrifice of animals because the continuing sin went on. Christ was led like a lamb to the slaughter to be that final sacrifice. So look back with me in Isaiah 53, verses 1 to 7. As Isaiah prophesies about this forthcoming Messiah, he writes 700 years before Jesus was on the scene. He says, Who has believed what we have heard? And whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of the dry ground. He didn't have an impressive form or majesty that we should look at him, and no appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised, and we didn't even value him. Yet he himself bore our sickness, he carried our pains, and we in return regarded him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities, punished for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We've all turned to our own way, and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth, and like a lamb, he was led to the slaughter. And we stop there. This morning we are looking at the, the uh, theology of Jesus being led like a lamb to the slaughter, and how it's not just in the Gospels, but it starts back in Genesis. So I want you to do something real quick, because I know you're all awake. Sarah and Richard, you can cheat because you've got your phone, you can get on your calculator. But I want you to take 2019, all of you remember 2019? That was a good year, like pre-COVID, right? Take 2019 and subtract 700. What do you get? Nobody's awake right now. I'll help you out. You get 1,319, 1,319. Well, this is just a simple illustration to say that if we had 2019, you took away 700 years, like Isaiah prophesied 700 years before Christ, you'd end up in the year 1319. Now, 1319 was a rough year. Y'all remember that year? Some of you do, right? Um, the Crusades had just concluded, where, where the, the people went in and basically, if you didn't believe in God, they killed you. Wow, what a nice Christian thing to do, right? So the Crusades had just concluded. The Byzantine Empire was still ruling the eastern part of Europe, and William Wallace was attempting to free Scotland from English rule. Now, here's the question. That's what was going on in 1319. What are the odds that anyone in that year could predict the assassination of Martin Luther King, the affair of Bill Clinton, or the presidency of Donald Trump? Any thoughts? What are the odds that they could predict that? Pretty slim. What are the odds that they could predict that we would have the internet and we'd be driving cars and flying and metal objects in the air and putting metal objects on the water and they float? What are the odds? What are the odds that they could predict that 700 years later we would be talking to each other across the world in a split second? What are the odds that they could predict that you wouldn't have to scrounge for food, he could go buy it in a convenience store or pop a TV dinner in a microwave. What are the odds they could predict that? 
Pretty impossible, isn't it? Well, we look at that again with the birth of Jesus and the predictions of Isaiah the prophet 700 years before Jesus comes on the scene. That between Isaiah 52 and 53, Isaiah lays down 24 prophecies that the Messiah would have to fulfill. And we looked in our first series of the messages that just fulfilling one, or excuse me, just fulfilling eight of those prophecies is one times 10 to the 17th power. In other words, that's 10 with 17 zeros behind it. It's literally impossible. And that's just eight prophecies. Jesus fulfills the 24 prophecies between Isaiah 52 and 53. He goes on to fulfill another 300 and some throughout the entire Bible, which should tell us something. What are the odds that one man would fulfill those? Well, they're impossible. But Jesus did because he does the impossible and only who can do the impossible? God. All four Gospels recognize that Jesus would be a lamb that was led to the slaughter. And as we've talked the last couple of weeks, when God repeats something in the Bible, what does that tell us? It's there for emphasis that we should pay attention to it, right? We should notice something there. Well, God repeats the image of Jesus being led away as a lamb to the slaughter in all four Gospels. So he doesn't just repeat it once, he repeats it four times. So this should be significant to us. Matthew says in Matthew 23 or 27, 31, and I'll just read these for you real quick, that, and they led him away to crucify him. Mark writes in Mark 15, 20, that they led him away to crucify him. Luke 23, 26 states, and they led him away. And John 19, 16 says, then they took Jesus away. All four Gospels relate the imagery that they took Jesus away and led him away to be crucified, spiritually to be sacrificed, one man to be sacrificed in place of all the people. Now, Jesus was a carpenter by trade, right? We all know that. And he probably spent about 17 years of his life cutting wood, chiseling stone, building buildings, making tables. He was probably a pretty skinny, well-built man for the era. But again, we read in Isaiah that he was not a good-looking man. In fact, he was probably someone pretty average and ordinary or not so pretty. But because of what he did in the agrarian society and the way life was, he was probably very well-built, probably strong. And as a carpenter, to saw the, the logs and, and to plane everything, you had to be in good shape, right? Anybody ever go out recently and try and saw a log, even with a chainsaw? Man, it just wipes you out, right? He did this day in and day out for probably some 17 years with his dad, so he was in good shape. That said, what that means is that when he allowed the priest to lead him away to judgment, which we looked at a couple weeks ago where he was silent, and to the place of his death, he allowed them to do that. Now, this is just a little warped thing to kind of get the image in your mind. Here's Jesus, who's been working as a carpenter for 17 years, good shape, strong muscles, you know, big kind of Popeye arms and everything. And here's the priest. What do most of the priests do? Well, they sit around and pray and talk, and maybe they stand up and pray, but did the priest really do a lot of physical work? Some of them did the sacrifices, some of them took care of the temple, but they really didn't do a lot of physical work. All that to say, Jesus probably could have stopped them in any moment, even as a man. 
and especially as God, he could have stopped them, but he didn't. The image of the lamb, the lamb's sacrifice. Let's go back and look at the theology on the lamb. Turn with me back to Genesis chapter 3, first book of the Bible. Because the whole Bible is about the story of the lamb and the sacrifice of the lamb to eradicate sins. And we see this back in Genesis 3, back with the story of our first parents, Adam and Eve. They were in the garden, and it was perfect. They were naked and not ashamed. Man, what would that be like? Woo! Can't remember that one. But there they were, and God had given them every single thing that they needed. They wanted for nothing. They worked for nothing. It was all provided. And God gave one stipulation. He says, here is everything that you can have, but there's one single thing out of everything you can't have. And he says, do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, or you will surely die. Well, then Satan comes on the scene and inhabits the serpent. And uh, we see that Adam and Eve do what? They do the one thing they're told not to do. Now, how human is that in the lives that we know? I mean, have you ever been, been somewhere and, and something's going on and someone says, hey, by the way, whatever you do, don't look at this. Or don't pay attention to this. What do you immediately do? You've got to stare at it. You've got to look at it. You've got to do the very thing they told you not to do. Why do we do that? It's that sin nature that we still struggle with. So Adam and Eve were told not to partake of one thing. Everything's provided. Just don't do this one thing. And what did they do? They did it with the egging on of Satan. They realized they were naked. They became ashamed. And they sewed fig leaves on themselves to cover themselves. Now, it was God's habit in the Garden of Eden to come out in the evening and walk and talk with Adam and Eve. How cool would that be? Not only is everything provided, God himself would come and we'd just kind of go for a little meandering stroll and walk and talk about how life was today. I mean, how good it was and what kind of fruit you ate and how much you enjoyed God's blessings, you know? How cool would that be? You know, you look forward to that every night. Hey, walking with God tonight. Well, honey, what do we want to do tomorrow night? Let's walk with God again. Let's just have a little chat with God. What a beautiful picture and how peaceful. You know, I, Christy and I sneak away to the mountains and the desert and places of, to go away, to get away from everybody, to have a little peace. And here, Adam and Eve have it in a garden. As they know, every day, that evening, after they've had this great day of providence and protection and provision and whatever fruit they want to eat, you know, whatever frolic in the grass they want to do, God comes and they go for a little walk and they talk about the day. How cool. And as God comes in, he notices something different on this day. And what's that? Adam and Eve aren't waiting for him. And so God says, the obvious, he goes, Adam, where are you? Now that's really kind of funny because do you think you can really hide from God? No, God knew where Adam was. But he wants Adam to be responsible for what's going on. So he says, Adam. Where are you? It's kind of like the kid that got in a cookie jar, right? You're like, um, did you get in that cookie jar? And you give the child a chance to answer. Adam states, uh, well, I was naked, so I hid. 
And God says, who told you you were naked? You didn't eat from the tree that I told you not to, did you? Ooh, it's getting kind of convicting now, isn't it? I mean, the whole story is kind of comical. One, you can't hide from God. So when God asks Adam, where are you? It's kind of funny. Then when Adam responds, he's like, Lord, I was naked. Well, what's he been every day before now? He's been naked. It was not an issue. There was nothing wrong with it. And then God asked him that pointed question of, did you get your fingers in a cookie jar? He says, did you eat from the tree that I told you not to? Here is where that great game, the blame game, was invented. Right here in Genesis 3 in the Garden of Eden. The blame game came in. And what is the blame game? You guys have all played it. You're pretty good at it, right? Adam says, Lord, it wasn't me. It was that woman you gave me, right? And what does the woman do? Lord, it wasn't me. It was that serpent. It was the devil made me do it. How many times have we said stuff like that? That's not my fault. The devil made me do it. It's his fault. Well, as a Christian, the devil can't make you do anything, can he? Because we are freed from the bounds of sin. He can tempt us, but he cannot make us sin. And he cannot make us do it. Therefore, when we blame Satan on how bad our life is or whatever, well, we're just playing that age-old Genesis 3 blame game. Genesis 3.21, what happens? And all this event says the Lord made clothing from skins for the man and his wife and he clothed them so here's the obvious question where did God get the skins and why are they skins I mean Adam and Eve already had fig leaves they did a good job they learned how to do a little weaving with fig leaves right why skins well an animal's life had to become a substitute for them clear back in Genesis 3 that because of what they had done, there should have been immediate death. And there was a spiritual death. They didn't physically die, but there was a spiritual death. And therefore, there had to be a sacrifice made, a shedding of blood, a life taken to cover their sin. So God had the first sacrificial animal that was given for their sin to cover their sins. And God took the animal skin and covered them. Flip forward to Genesis 22. In Genesis 21, we read about Abraham and his son in his old age that he'd been promised for years, right? How, think about that again. Here you are, an old man. You haven't had children. You're getting on in years. The one thing that you feel you're lacking is a child. And God himself promises you what? A son which in the Jewish, in the Hebrew tradition was a big thing to carry on the family lineage. Well, you're waiting for God to give you the promise of a son and you wait and you wait and you wait and you wait. And finally, God answers the promise. So Abraham waited 25 years roughly for his son from when God promised. That's a lot of waiting, right? There's a lesson in here for us. When God promises us something, he'll keep his word, but he may not do it in our time. Y'all love to wait, don't you? Like a day, a week, a year, five years, 10 years. 
the lesson from Abraham is God made Abraham wait 25 years to have the fulfillment of his promise. Obviously, that when God speaks to us and promises something, it may not happen right away. So what is our call? To be humble and to wait upon the Lord in his time. But then God says something really interesting. In chapter 22, God says, Abraham, Abraham, take your son, your only son, whom you love, and offer him to me as a burnt offering on Mount Moriah. This seems like a tragedy, doesn't it? Here, God has promised Abraham the one thing that he has looked forward to and wanted, a son. He waits 25 years to have a son, and then he grows up, and by now he's, he's a, a young man. He's not a little kid. He's a young man. And God says, Abraham, take your son, your only son, your greatest blessing, your, 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 your love after me, and I want you to take him up on Mount Moriah, and I want you to sacrifice his life unto me. In a sad way, I'm glad it was Abraham and not me. I don't know if I could do that. But Abraham is faithful, and even though he doesn't understand and it seems to conflict everything that God has done, he trusts God. Now, where Abraham was, it's a three-day journey to Mount Moriah, so think about that. Christy and I just went down to southern Utah, and we had a five-and-a-half-hour drive. You know how many things you can think of in five and a half hours? A lot. As the thoughts just kind of run through your mind and you're contemplating, you know, your wife is sleeping, the radio's off, you just hear the roar of the tires, your mind can just think about all kinds of things. Here's Abraham and his son, three day journey to Mount Moriah, three days to think, three days to ponder, three days to question. Am I doing the right thing? Did I hear the wrong voice? Is this really what God wants me to do? Abraham brings three things with him, a bundle of wood, a tinderbox with fire, and a knife, and he lets his son carry the firewood. That's kind of odd, because what's the wood for? It's to burn up the body once it's sacrificed. So Abraham allows his son to carry his own wood for a sacrifice. And as they get there, y'all know the story. It's a beautiful story. God allows Abraham to go up. They build the altar. They place the wood down. Abraham tells his son what's going on, that he's the sacrifice. It's a beautiful, beautiful story, if you dig into it, of being godly and good parenting. Because in the story, when Abraham tells his son that he's the sacrifice and this is all for God's glory, what do you not read in the Bible? You don't read that his son ran away. You don't read that his son argued with him. The inference is that his son said, well, if dad, if this is for God and God is the most important thing in our life, then I'll lay down on the altar. It was a voluntary laying down. Abraham, who was saved by faith as a man of God, had taught his son what it meant to be a man of God to the point that even if it would cost him his life, his son said, if this is for God and it's God's will, I will obey. Wow, there's a lesson for us there too, isn't there? To obey even though it looks 
glim and horrible. And as the story goes, it's not until Abraham is literally bringing the knife down that God sends an angel to intervene. Clear to that point, what do you think Abraham's thinking this whole time? What do you think his son's thinking the whole time? Well, God's going to save us. God's going to do this. And he's going up and he's picking up the knife. The altar's built. The wood's there. His son lays down. Abraham brings the knife up and he's like, okay, God, like any time now, now would be a good moment because we're at that point. And nothing until the knife is actually raised and coming down. And then God says, he speaks again. He says, Abraham, Abraham. And Abraham says, here I am. God says, do not lay a hand on your son and do not harm him. For now that I know that you really do have faith in me. Because you did not withhold even your son from me. Another lesson for us. What, it would, what would it take for us to really show God that we had faith in him? To what limit would we go? That God would look at us and said, you know, you can stop what you're doing because I know now that you would withhold nothing from me. Your faith has saved you. Genesis 22 verses 13 says this, Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it as a burnt offering in the place of his son. Now again, I think this is a little comical because wouldn't you think you'd hear a ram caught in a thicket right next to you? And then he's got to wrestle the ram because anyone's ever been around a ram? I know Ellen has. They just do whatever you want them to do, don't you? So Abraham doesn't even notice this ram. All of a sudden, the ram's in a thicket. All of a sudden, there's no, nothing here that says Abraham had to wrestle and make the ram get up on the altar. They get up there and they offer the ram in place of his son. So the ram is offered in place of Isaac. God offers the sacrifice is the point of the whole story, isn't it? God provides the sacrifice. Now, what is a ram? Anybody besides Ella know? Richard? Sarah? A ram is a male lamb, isn't it? A lamb still needed to be slaughtered in order to save the life, to be the sacrifice. Now jump over to Exodus chapter 12. Now we're in and we've got God's people in slavery for 400 years in Egypt. God wants to set them free, so he presents Pharaoh, who is in charge, with 10 powerful visual aids of why Pharaoh should release them. And every time, Pharaoh's heart is what? Hardened again and again, and he refuses to let God's people go. God gives Pharaoh all these obvious, huge, massive visual aids to say, look, I'm God, you're not Pharaoh, you should let my people go, and every time, Pharaoh does not. So finally, the 10th plague, where God is going to judge Egypt for their sins, because in the end, we're all judged for our sins, aren't we? That's why we need the sacrifice. The Israelites have sinned as well as the Egyptians. So let's read what the Bible says about this. It says, tell every household to select a one-year-old lamb, a male without spot or blemish, and bring it into your house for four days. So remember that four, how many days? Bring it into your house for four days. That's a long time to have a, a lamb in your house, right? I think Christy would love that, but the mess and everything, I probably wouldn't be so happy about it. 
bring a lamb into your house for four days, and at the end of four days, have them sacrifice the lamb, take some of its blood and sprinkle it on the doorpost and the lentils of their house. On that night, the angel of death will pass through the entire land and take every life of the firstborn male in payment for the people's sins. There still had to be a sacrifice. The angel will enter every home, and if it sees the blood on the doorpost and the lentils, it will count that blood as payment for the family's sins and pass over the house, sparing everyone in it. Now put yourself in Egypt as a slave. God has been silent for 400 years. God finally speaks to this guy called Moses. There's all these miraculous things going on in the land. Pharaoh's heart is hardened. You're mad at Moses because of what Moses is doing. You are getting extra work and extra labor. So you're not real happy about the whole thing. It's kind of like, this is how God saves us? I mean, really? Sometimes God uses hard circumstances to speak to us, doesn't he? For the people in Egypt, things got worse before they got better. As God's salvation began to usher into Egypt, they had more labor, harder stones. Pharaoh said to make them find their own hay to put in the mud and he didn't provide it for them. Life got really hard right before salvation. But they're still trying to follow God. They see God speaking and moving. And Moses says, everybody adopt a lamb. Well, here's where Christy's really excited. Adopt a lamb, bring it into our house. You know, she's gonna name that lamb, isn't she? She's gonna call it Fluffy because it's so cute and fluffy. And she's gonna play with it and she's gonna have fun with it and she's gonna love that lamb and she's gonna feed it probably with a spoon. <laughs> And she's going to pet that lamb, and much to my dismay, she'll probably have that lamb on the bed sleeping with us at night, too, because it's so cute and cuddly, and when it snores, it, ah, it's so lovely. And day four, what does John do? Day four, John takes the lamb out back, and he has a knife, and he slits his throat and pours the blood into a bowl to use it to mark the doorpost. It's a beautiful story, not, right? I mean, what do you tell the kids? When the kids look up and it's like, Mom, what did that lamb ever do to Dad? Mom, we love that lamb. And the mom has to explain that the lamb never did anything to Dad. And Dad's just following God's will. And we need to sacrifice that lamb to cover our sins. You see, that's the price of sin is a life and when we lose a life it's hard isn't it even an animal loving that little fluffy lamb for four days and then having to sacrifice it and mark your doorpost with it think of that as a child every time you go in and out of that door what do you think of fluffy but it's a great image that God gives the people of the price and the cost and the consequence of sin, that because of sin, the price is death and something has to die. And although those little Hebrew children may have looked up and remembered Fluffy, they also remembered what they were told, that that lamb had to be crucified, or not crucified, killed in their place to cover their sin. The people in Egypt were spared because they believed God and they sacrificed an animal, animal and marked their doorpost. 
God says in Exodus 12, 21 to 22, he says, Go select the animal from the flock according to the families and slaughter the Passover animal. Take a cluster of hyssop, which is just a branch, dip it in the blood that is in the basin and brush the lentil and the two doorposts with some of the blood in the basin. Do you know that for the next 1400 years, on this very same day, the Israelites would bring a lamb into their home and every household would sacrifice a Passover lamb or they would take it to the temple year after year after year for 1400 years. Why? Because they kept sinning, right? The sin continued. The sacrifice was temporary. They didn't have a permanent sacrifice. The sacrifice continued as Israel moved into the Promised Land. They continued when they were out of captivity. They continued when they returned back to their homeland. They continued as prophets came and went. And there was always the talk of the final sacrificial lamb. Isaiah comes on the scene somewhere in this time, and he talks about the suffering servant who would one day come and align God's people closely back to God. And as we read in Isaiah 53, he says, verse 7, he was led like a lamb to the slaughter. Now we read this looking back, right? But again, put yourself in this situation. Isaiah the prophet comes on a scene and says, hey, the Messiah is coming and he'll be like a lamb led to the slaughter. Well, that had to be a little confusing, right? We know we sacrifice lambs, so is the Messiah going to be an animal or a person? It's kind of like when Jesus told his disciples that they would have to partake of his body and drink of his blood. We just call it communion because we know the symbolism, right? But the people at the time really struggled with that, didn't they? In fact, it says that out of the 500 disciples that were around, when Jesus said, you must eat my body and drink my blood, 500 and some disciples walked away right then and there because they're like, this dude is crazy. This is nuts. That does not make sense at all. We know it was symbolic, but they didn't. Here Isaiah says that the Messiah will come as a lamb led to the slaughter. This had to be a difficult thing for the people to hear, right? Well, this is weird. A lamb? This doesn't make sense. And the people wondered, and they kept sacrificing. 700 years later, here we are on the shore of a lake. There's some crazy guy that eats crickets, dressed in camel hair, out in the lake, and he is baptizing people. And here comes this scrawny carpenter walking on the shore, and John the Baptist looks up and fulfills the prophecy of Isaiah and says in John chapter 1, verse 29, Here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Again, as a Jewish person, as a Hebrew person, you have been waiting for the Lamb to come for 14 hundred years. Your family for generations and generations has talked about it. They've looked forward to it and they said someday Isaiah prophesied the lamb would come and here it is they're at the lake and everybody at the lake is there and John looks up and says the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and suddenly Jesus fulfills the prophecy and in my own little warped mind I can suddenly see mothers crying and hugging their babies, fathers cradling their sons, and, and people getting excited from the electricity and the religious leaders just cringing. 
going, no, it's not going down that way. Jesus comes in as the Lamb of God who will be led away to slaughter, who once and for all is the final sacrifice. No more Passover lamb sacrifices. When Jesus is sacrificed on the cross, it's finished. So for three years after this baptism, Jesus teaches like no other. He heals like no other. He cares like no other. He loves like no other. And then he's led up to a hill called Golgotha, which means the skull. And he, as a servant, suffers tremendously and dies like no other, giving his life for the sins of the world. And on the cross, he cries out a Greek word called telestai, which in English means it is finished. And then John 19, 30 says he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. But he said, it is finished. In other words, I am the final sacrifice. No more sacrifices. I cover sins past, present, and future. I am the final sacrifice. Now, telestai is an interesting word. And we know that it means it is finished, but it also means paid in full. In the Greek times, they would have, if you were alone on a boat, on a ship, when you finally made that last payment on the ship, they would stamp telestai on the bow of the ship so that everyone would know that ship now belonged to you. And what it said was paid in full. There's nothing else that needs to be done. These people own this ship outright. It's theirs. They can do with it what they want to. They are no longer under the bondage of a financial burden or loan. They're no longer enslaved to someone else financially. They are free. And that's what Jesus did. Hebrews 19.12 says that he entered the most holy place once for all time, not by the blood of goats or calves, but by his own blood, having attained eternal redemption. And 40 days after the resurrection, Jesus returned to heaven. Revelations 5.13 states this. I heard every creature in heaven, on earth, under the earth, and on the sea, and everything in them, saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be to the one seated on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. You see, the story of the Bible is about the Lamb, from Genesis to Revelation, and especially at that stopping point in the four Gospels, where Jesus fulfilled the prophecy of being the Lamb that was led away to slaughter, and the symbolism is that he was the final sacrifice. It is finished, it is done, it is paid in full. And as Easter approaches, that's where we can celebrate that Jesus became the final sacrifice for you and for me. That no longer do we need to sacrifice an animal to cover our sins every year. No longer do we have to take an animal in and then take it out to butcher it. No longer do we have to do any of that. In salvation through Jesus Christ, we have been made free. And the Bible says that if we are free in Christ, we are free indeed. We are free from the shackles of sin. We are no longer under the bonds of temptation. And we are free spiritually and physically to obey God and to serve Him. And that should be reason to celebrate. So as Isaiah prophesied back in Isaiah 53, 7 about the sacrificial lamb, Easter, we celebrate that Jesus fulfilled that in a miraculous way, 700 years later, to save you and to save me.
And that's worth celebrating, isn't it? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you and praise you that, uh, Lord, from Genesis to Revelation, you tell us about the sacrifice of your son. Lord, you repeat it over and over intently that we would get it, that we would understand it, that we would embrace it and rejoice over it. Lord, I pray that, uh, Lord, in spite of what I've said, that we would remember what Christ has done, the great lengths he went, and the prophecies that he fulfilled to be that final sacrifice for us. And I pray that we would praise you and rejoice in you and give you all glory for the sacrifice, the debt of our sin that you have paid, dear Jesus. To you be all glory forever and ever. Amen.